Well, we continue to worship the Lord through the study of his word as Brandon just prayed for that. And I'll ask you, if you wouldn't mind, take that Bible that you brought with you today. And uh, let's go to the place where uh, the team read for us a little bit earlier, Matthew chapter 5. If you got out of the house without a Bible today, just uh, raise your hand. We keep some in the back. We can put a Bible in your hand. That'll be a, maybe a help to you along the way. And there is a little note page in your bulletin. If you wouldn't mind, grab that. That'll just uh, give you something to take away with you and provide some direction for us this morning. I'm guessing that most of us would be familiar with the term a perfect storm, right? You're, you're kind of uh, familiar with that phrase, a perfect storm, yeah? It's what we say when a set of circumstances, some, some of them just seemingly unrelated and, and disconnected, when they all kind of come together, they all converge at a particular moment in time, and they create this thing we call the perfect storm. And usually when we say that, what we mean is that several things that aren't, they're not good, they're negative, they're bad, they're unwelcome, they all come together to create this perfect storm. So what do you call it, though, when uh, a set of circumstances, some seemingly unrelated and disconnected, they all converge at a particular moment in time, but they're not bad things. They're actually really good things. They all kind of come together at once. What do you call that? Ooh, that's too big a word for me, Alan. I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know if you'd call it the perfect calm. I really don't know what you would call that. Anyway, all that to say that a converging of circumstances, good circumstances, has occurred in my life and and hopefully in yours today, perhaps as well, as we share these moments together uh, in God's word. Cer- several circumstances have all come together at the same time to shape the moments that we're about to share. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, f- for instance, one circumstance, we just finished last Sunday our One Another series that has carried us through the entire Summer And so we've been wrapped up in that, and, and every Sunday morning we've been taking a look at, at one of the one another's out of Scripture and just kind of working with those together all summer long. But we wrapped that up last Sunday, which means that today we're free to go anywhere and do anything we want with our time in God's Word. Well, that's circumstance number one. Circumstance number two, today is August 31st. You say, well, what's so significant about that? It happens once a year. And, and that is true. But it's August 31st, and it is also the 31st year, the anniversary of the day that I started at Idlewild Bible Church and stood behind this pulpit for the very first time. was was uh, 31 years ago today, August 31st. Thank you for that. I appreciate the clapping. It was that, That's encouraging to me. All right, so uh, our series has ended. It's the 31st. It's 31 years together. And I remember so clearly what I preached that very first Sunday with all of you 31 years ago. It was out of Matthew chapter 5, where your Bible is now open sharing together verses 13 to 16. And as I reflected on that, it occurred to me that as we talked 31 years ago about Matthew chapter 5, what we shared then could serve as the perfect wrap-up 
to our One Another series. It's almost like it would be tailor-made as the conclusion to this One Another series that we have shared together so much. This series we've spent all summer with has been all about living the person of Jesus out of our shared relationships with each other, living out Jesus so conspicuously that the unbelieving community around us would not be able to miss seeing Jesus. They, through the one another's in us, would see Jesus. That's what we've been talking about all summer long. Well, 31 years ago, the challenge that I set before us as a church family was let Jesus be seen living out of our lives from Matthew chapter 5. So here we are, August 31st. 31st anniversary, we're in between series, we can do anything we want, and what we did 31 years ago puts the perfect exclamation point on what we just finished last week, so what do you call that? Alan, what was that again? A syzygy, yes, all right, we're just going to go with that word, I have no idea what that really means, but we're going to go with that, and so church family, are you willing to go back to Matthew 5, that place that we shared 31 years ago, and just see what God would have for us together this morning? Please say yes, because if you, if you say no, I, I don't have an, a backup plan here. All right, Matthew chapter 5, and, and, and Lord Jesus, you're the one who spoke these words, and so we ask you to bring them to life for us. Amen and amen. A Peanuts cartoon once showed Peppermint Patty talking to Charlie Brown And she says to him, guess what, Chuck? It's the first day of school, and I've already got sent to the principal's office. It was your fault, Chuck. And Charlie Brown says, my fault? How could it be my fault? Why is everything you do my fault? To which Patty says, you're my friend, aren't you, Chuck? You should have been a better influence on me. It's all your fault. You should have been a better influence on me. Now, obviously, Patty was trying to pass the buck, but she did speak some truth in that cartoon. Brothers and sisters, we should be good influences on those around us, especially so because we claim to be devoted followers of the Lord Jesus. Amen? We ought to be good influences on those around us. People are watching us as followers of Jesus, and they're watching us all the time. Would you agree? They are. If they know that you know Jesus and and make claim to follow him, they watch you. Maybe you've heard the story of the pastor who was making a wooden trellis to support a climbing vine on the side of his house, and as he was pounding away, he noticed this little boy walk up and and was just standing there watching him, didn't say a word. And, and the youngster uh, just kept watching while the pastor worked. And, and the pastor thought, well, he'll get bored and he'll eventually he'll wander off and that'll be that. But the boy didn't leave. He just stood there and watched. pastor began to think, wow, this is pretty cool. This little boy is, is admiring my, my woodworking skills. And so he says, young fella, are you trying to pick up some pointers on, on woodworking? The little boy said, no, sir, no, sir. I'm just waiting to hear what the preacher says when he hits his thumb with a hammer. That's all. (laughs) Being watched, right? You know, if we name the name of Jesus, 
we are being watched and we are sending messages, brothers and sisters, and we are influencing others concerning their understanding and their perception of who this person named Jesus is. Every day, every one of us is a preacher. Every one of us. Not necessarily with our voices, but we are most certainly preaching with our lives, with our actions, possibly with our words, but definitely with our actions. If we know Jesus, we are preaching. What do others see? What, what, what do they hear? What do they observe as they observe us doing life with Jesus? Whether good or bad, right or wrong, honorable, dishonorable, we are influencing others. And it is from this place, from this truth, that Jesus shares his heart in Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16, which we read a moment ago. Look at your Bible again now, if you would. We'll start at verse 13. I'd like to just reacquaint us one more time, though it's been read. And I'll be reading out of the ESV, verses 13 to 16, Matthew 5. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, Before we dive into verses 13 to 16, there are a few observations that we would want to make about this passage. Um, And and I've made those there on your little note page uh, under the title, Things to Take Note of. (laughs) Go figure. And I just want to draw these to your attention before we jump in uh, to the, the passage itself. We want to be, first of all, as always, we do this every week, church family. I know you get tired of hearing it. But we got to pay attention to context, right? That's the first thing we want to do. I already mentioned these verses are part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which takes all of, of chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew for him to preach this sermon. Verses 13 to 16 are just a part of that, uh, an important part, but still only a small part, really, of something much larger than themselves. And so if we want to understand these verses, then we really want to understand the larger context of the sermon that Jesus preached and that's really not hard to do since the main goal of Jesus entire sermon is to show his listeners how they are to think and how they are to live as citizens of God's kingdom if you follow Jesus he's going to lay it out for us here in these three chapters here's how you live well for me now To that good end, Jesus opens his sermon in the first 12 verses of chapter 5 by describing the character of kingdom people. These verses are familiar to many of us. We call them the Beatitudes, which is nothing more than a word that means super blessed. Jesus says that the subject of his kingdom possess some specific character traits. Kingdom people, Jesus says in verse 3, are completely God-dependent. They're not self-sufficient. They are poor in spirit. Their heart breaks over sin in verse 4. 
They are humble. They are meek. They don't care if they get noticed or applauded or recognized. They let Jesus have all the honor in verse 5. They have a humble character. They love what God loves. They love what is right or what is righteous in verse 6. And they show mercy because they have been shown so much mercy themselves by God in verse 7. They run from sin. They pursue obedience to God's word. Whatever is pure as God defines pure, that's what they're striving for in verse 8. In verse 9, they long for peace between a holy God and, and and a rebellious sinful world made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then in verses 10 and 11, they gladly endure persecution for their loyalty to Jesus. They never quit. They never give up, though persecuted for righteousness' sake, Jesus says. And then in verse 12, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad if this is your character, because this is my character in you. Rejoice in that. Then after that opening, that call to kingdom character, Jesus quite naturally transitions into thinking about how such a character ought to influence or impact other people. So we can thank Peppermint Patty because she got us going in the right direction. We ought to be influencing others for Jesus. Others who are not yet part of his kingdom. And that's when he introduces in verses 13 to 16 these two common everyday items that anyone anywhere can identify with. He makes these two ordinary items uh, and takes them and transforms them for us into two powerful, powerful spiritual metaphors in order to make a point about influence. What are the two items? (laughs) Hint, hint, salt and light. Yeah, salt and light. Now, because we live in the 21st century and not in the 1st century, the significance of both salt and light could easily be lost on us. For most of us, salt is, is so ordinary, we don't, even, we don't even notice it. It's just this, this little container with holes on the top of it that sits on the table, right? That's it. In Jesus' day, though, salt's place was way more prominent. When Jesus used this illustration, it, it really hit home with the people. The Romans, for instance, which ruled in Jesus' day, believed that there was nothing more valuable than salt except for the sun. That's how important it was. Often Roman soldiers received their military pay, not in the form of coin, but in the form of a bag of salt because they could barter with that. Everybody wanted salt. It was very, very valuable. And so they were paid with that, which is why the phrase, uh, he's not worth his salt, that's where it came from. From this period of time, you were a poor worker, you were a lazy soldier, you weren't worth your salt. Salt was very valuable. And of course, in Jesus' time, there were, there were no power stations, there was no electric grid, there was no stadium floodlights, all these things that we just take so for granted today. Those were totally unimaginable. Light was, was a pretty rare thing. You had to work to make light happen. So for Jesus' listeners, the impact of even one little oil lamp, the flame from one little lamp on a dark night, man, that was well understood and it was something important, something valuable. And so as Jesus speaks to us, we must remember these two images that are common and relatively insignificant in our time. They were big deals in Jesus' day. 
Another thing worth noting before we dive into these verses has to do with our identity. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that his kingdom people are kind of like salt or that they are kind of like light. He says what? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. This is what Jesus calls you and I who know him as Lord and Savior. This is what he calls us to be. It's who we are, and, and it's in some respects our job description as a follower of Jesus. The day that you and I came to the place of saving faith in Jesus Christ, we stopped trusting in ourselves and, and our good efforts to, to try to impress God and win a place with him in heaven like so many people are trying to do today. The day that we stopped doing that and we just admitted, I, I'm a sinner and, and I need Jesus He's the only Savior that God has provided. And and I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. He paid my sin debt for me. And and I, I give him my life in simple faith. The day that that happened for you, Jesus said, was the day that you became salt. And you became light for the world. In fact, the word you in verse 13, again in verse 14, it's in the emphatic position in the original text. It's actually in the plural as well. You collectively, church, family who know Jesus, you all together are the salt and the light for this community called Idlewild and beyond. That's our identity. We want to keep that in mind. And then the fifth thing we notice from Jesus' words is that we can choose not to be what we are. Sounds kind of weird, but it's, it's, it's there in this passage. Salt and light both have specific roles to fulfill. They are to influence what they are around. But while our calling is to influence, Jesus implies in this passage that the subjects of his, his kingdom uh, can fail to be what they are. Salt that isn't salty, light that doesn't light. Jesus says, my dear Christian, you are different from everyone else in the world who doesn't know me. You have a responsibility to be what you are for my sake, for your sake, and for the sake of those who don't know me yet. Be salt, be light. Choose that. Okay, so these five observations are now made. They're jotted down on on that little note page for you. Let's have a closer look at these two metaphors and see what Jesus has for us here. Starting with verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Now, my guess is that no one who has spent much time around the church has not been exposed to this statement before. I mean, this is a pretty common statement. You are the salt of the earth. But it's really the second half of the verse that unlocks for us what Jesus is thinking about here. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? That is the key to understanding this metaphor, the second half of the verse. What did Jesus mean by that? Because it's, it's really, it doesn't make sense to say that salt loses its saltiness, does it? That doesn't, that doesn't really work. Technically speaking, scientifically speaking, the element that we call salt, sodium chloride, isn't really salt if it's not what? Salty, right? It's, it's something else. 
Salt has to be salty in order to be salt. So what's going on here? Well, history tells us that in Jesus' time, most salt came from evaporated mineral deposits on the, the banks of a marsh or a lagoon, or, or it was collected from the rocks around the Dead Sea, south of, south of Jerusalem. This, this salt was, for that reason, rarely pure. Nothing like what we know of today when we reach for the Mortons, right? Nothing like that at all. First century salt contained varying amounts of, of mineral deposits and impurities. And so this being the case, depending on how much contaminant there was in the bag of salt, it could be said to have lost its saltiness. In fact, sometimes unscrupulous merchants would purposely mix crushed white gypsum with the pure salt, and then they would sell it as pure salt. It looked like pure salt, but it wasn't. When this contamination got so bad or the salt was so diluted, the only thing that the woman of the house could do when she touched the salt and it just wasn't very salty, all she could really do with that was what? Throw it out the front door onto the path so that at least it wasn't good for anything else. At least it could be packed down and maybe, maybe into her path, into her home. And Jesus actually says that it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In other words, Jesus is thinking about us, his followers, and he's speaking to us about the issue of how pure, how uncontaminated and undiluted by this sinful world you and I really are. You following him through his illustration? The more we look like Jesus and the more that we reflect the character of Jesus uh, that we see in verses 3 through 12, and we could even add the more that we reflect the 41 and others that we've been studying all summer long, the saltier we will be. But turn that around and the opposite is also true. The more that the values of a fallen world and the practices of our sinful culture are taken into our lives individually and collectively as a, as a church family and are adopted, the more that happens, the less distinctive, distinctiveness there is between us as followers of Jesus and the world that we live in, the less salty we become and the less salty we are, the less influence we have, the less impact we have for Jesus' sake. And so Jesus is, in a sense, asking us here. He's asking us, does your life, follower of me, does, does your life, your choices, your actions, the way that, the, that you live, the way that you think, reflect who you claim that you are? We have the title, Jesus follower, but are we really living that? We've been entrusted with the role of being salt, and Jesus asks are you really salty? Bottom line, salt influences whatever it comes in contact with. When it doesn't influence, it must be because it's been diluted or contaminated in some way. Salt is salty. You want to say that with me? Salt is salty. Same with you and me. A fully devoted follower of Jesus is going to be an influencer because they are salty. Yeah. 
All right. Near the bottom of your note page, think about three obvious ways that this saltiness in our lives exerts influence. First of all, what does salt do? It adds flavor, doesn't it? Sure, sure. As a general rule, it's not a good idea for me to hang out in the kitchen. And Lisa would affirm this. Cooking is not my thing. I can do cleanup pretty well. I tend to be more of an ancient good Israelite. I make burnt offerings, but I don't, I don't really cook. But even though I don't cook and I don't hang out in the kitchen very much, I do understand what salt does with food. Man, it, 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 it just enhances the flavor of food in a remarkable way. When you have bad sore throat, though, if all you have is straight salt, not so good, right? You gargle with it, but uh, it's bad. But when you apply it in the right way to food, it has this amazing power to be able to unleash the flavor of the food. As Christians, we're God's seasoning for the world. That's what Jesus would be implying here. Just as salt adds tremendously to the flavor of food and fires up the taste buds, so too we can make life more tasty for other people. More depth, more substance, more perspective, more purpose, more peace, more thankfulness. It flows out of our life when we're living Jesus, and it adds flavor to the world. We can bring that into our relationships, this flavor. We've been talking about it all summer. It's unfortunate when Jesus' church has the reputation of being flavorless. Agreed? And sometimes it has that. It has the reputation of being flavorless or boring. I remember reading about Oliver Wendell Holmes. He was a famous American author who said, I might have become a pastor if certain ministers I knew had not looked and acted like undertakers. (laughs) What was he saying? Saltless. uh, No flavor. No attraction. What did Jesus say in John chapter 10 verse 10? I have come that they may have life and have it how? Abundantly. Are you knowing and experiencing that, brothers and sisters? That abundant life? That, 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 that life to the fullest? That's what we bring to the table. Nehemiah said, The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is also the salty flavor that we, we bring to the table of life. We ought to be attracting people through that by the way we live. A second way salt influences has to do with preserving. Salt prevents decay, doesn't it? We all understand this role for salt. People in Jesus' day didn't have refrigerators. So anything that they wanted to keep for a length of time, they had to do what with it? You bet. They had to pack it in salt. They had to put salt into that. And if they salted that meat, for example, boy, it could keep for a very long time. Used in this way, salt is not making something taste good so much as it is keeping it from going bad. So, fellow Christian, we are, according to Jesus here, to be a preservative for our culture, a moral preservative. God places us into this spiritually sinful, increasingly evil world where sin abounds, And it seems like the goal of our world is to think of more creative ways to sin and to exclude God. God places us into this world in some measure so that we can hold back decay, the moral decay. As we stand for what God stands for, as we hold firm to his values, his truth, his word, 
we have this anti-decaying influence upon our culture. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but when you trusted Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you were agreeing to become in some measure a moral disinfectant, a moral preservative. I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself like that. But that's, what he's, that's how he thinks of you in, his, in this fallen world. That's what you are. You, along with your fellow Christian brothers and sisters, will help to slow down the advance of sin in our culture. We're supposed to be the moral conscience for a community and ultimately for a nation. A voice speaking out for what is true and right and really God-honoring. It's what our predecessors did when they fought to abolish slavery, right? That was a great evil. That was a moral evil. And there were those who fought to, to remove that decay. It's, it's, it's what we do when we try to make a strong statement for the dignity and value of the unborn, right? I mean, what, what is that? that that's, that's being a moral anti-decaying agent when we call out that that, that that is wrong. That is a great offense to our God. When we seek to see Roe versus Wade overturned, what are we being? Salt? Sure. Is that not what we're trying to do as we seek to influence legislation and, and preserve the definition of marriage being between a man and a woman? What is that? That's salt. And is that not what we're doing when we press for swift sentencing for those who exploit children or women? Or for those with premeditation, take the life of another person. When we press for the, the right in those situations, are we not salt? If we're truly living for Jesus, brothers and sisters, we know going in that we're going to be swimming upstream and running counter to the moral flow of our culture. It's just going to be a, a fight. Because as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, our world is proceeding from bad to Worse, not better, worse. As devoted followers of Jesus, we are to be preserving influence to retard moral and spiritual spoilage in the world. Third, salt creates something else. What is that? Thirst, you bet. We've all heard the expression, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That is true, but it should say somewhere that you could give the horse a little salt, and then he might want to drink, right? Yeah. I, you know, I, I learned this recently. I, this kind of blows me away, but, uh, and, I'm, and I'm not naming any names or restaurants or anything else, but I learned that there are some restaurants, the all-you-can-eat buffet restaurants, that will purposely salt the food more than normal so that patrons will end up drinking more water and eating less food. And by that, they save money. Interesting, isn't it? Salt makes you thirsty. Folks, when we are truly living for Jesus and we are interacting with those who don't know Jesus, God is often pleased to use us to make people thirsty. Something about us ought to be distinctly different and create curiosity at the very least. What is it about you? Why do you think like that? Why do you talk like that? Why do you choose not to do that and you choose to do that? You're making a person thirsty when you are salty. They may not know quite what to make of you, but 
it creates an opportunity for you to talk about Jesus. 1 Peter 3.15, how does it read? But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. In other words, be distinct. If you're a follower of Jesus, be all in. Be salty. Be light. And then what does that allow you to do? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. Interesting, isn't it? Everyone who asks you. They're thirsty. Asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Salt is a seasoning. Salt is a preservative. Salt as something which will make people thirsty. In all three instances, the salt must be in contact with the object it wants to influence. And but even more, and this is Jesus' point, the salt must be truly salty. Right? It has to be salty. If it's not salty, then it's what? No influence. If as a follower of Jesus, my life, my thoughts, my words, my actions do not stand out against the the, the backdrop of my surroundings, if there's no discernible difference between it and me, if the values of my culture and my community have infiltrated and contaminated and, and been absorbed into my life to such a degree that there's very little distinction between my culture and me, then I have lost my voice, I've lost my impact, I've lost my influence, I have lost my, say it, saltiness. Yes, you are tracking yeah. So, brothers and sisters, really the question is, how salty are we? Mm, how salty are we? And I don't mean by that, that 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 we're rude or condescending or we're Bible pounding or, or you know, going up to people and say, turn or burn, you know, none of that kind of salty, all right? Gentleness and respect we're talking about. But how salty are you and how salty am I? And does our saltiness come in contact with the, the, those outside of our church who don't know Jesus yet? Are we IBC, the salt of the earth, flavorful, preserving, creating thirst? That's Jesus' question to us. And then to make even more clear his point that his followers are to be influencers and not to be the influenced Jesus turns from the metaphor of salt to the metaphor of light. In verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And though salt might do its work kind of secretively, maybe a little bit on the hidden side at times, there's no way you can say that about light because light by its very nature is just out there, isn't it? There's no hiding light, which is why the Bible from cover to cover uses light as a metaphor for God because there's no hiding God. It's why the Bible uses darkness as a metaphor for sin because it's what it is about. It's about hiding. It's about evil. That's Satan's big deal. Hiding, lying, deceiving, covering up. Interesting, 750 years before Jesus was born, God foretold the coming of Jesus, announced his arrival into our world. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great what? Light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. 750 years before Jesus came, God said, the light is coming. And then in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus will say of himself, I am the 
the light of the world. You bet. The light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And, and if you look here at, at Luke, at uh, Matthew 14, 15, you now are the light of the world. Jesus is the light. He comes into our world. He says, I'm the light of the world. And, and lo and behold, what does he do? He makes us lights too. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill can't be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on the lampstand because that's what you're supposed to do. He mentions two sources of light. The city on a hill. Everybody in Jesus' day would have known exactly what he meant because that's where people built cities. Jerusalem sat on a hilltop. Day or night, you knew where Jerusalem was. Second light source, verse 15, the lamp. First century homes generally had just one large room. They weren't broken up like our homes are. Everything took place in that one room. And, and off to the side during the day, there would be a table set. It might have pots and, and uh, other things sitting on it. But when darkness came, the family would move that table from the wall right into the center of the room, and they would put an oil lamp right there on the top of that, that table. And then that would give light to the entire room. People would gather around the table. They would share light in the light of that one lamp. Those listening knew the importance of even a single source of light in the center of the room. And so when Jesus mentioned the idea of someone taking a bowl and putting it over an oil lamp in the middle of the room, they, he probably got a few chuckles as he was preaching that because it would have been absurd. Why would you waste the oil? Why would you not have that light open where everybody could see it? And that was Jesus' thought too. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Let your light shine. If you flip that little note page over for just a moment, let's think like we did with the salt. Let's think about ways that light influences. For one thing, it, it does what? It dispels the darkness. Absolutely. Even the smallest light, the, the weakest, tiniest little point of light, no matter how insignificant, can chase away the most oppressive, heavy darkness. True? Uh, they don't do this anymore. When I was a little boy, my mom and dad took me to Carlsbad Caverns, and you would be taken by a, a park ranger, and you'd go all the way down in the ground, 900 feet down, awesome, cool deal. And, and back then, they had this moment where they would stop the tour, and they would turn out all the lights. That was the blackest black you could possibly imagine. There was, there was not a single atom of light. You were down there. It was so oppressive. You could just feel it against your skin. And then the ranger would do this. this he would take a little lighter and just light that lighter. And instantly this oppressive blackness, this darkness, would whew, it was just gone. The power of a single lamp, a single little light. And, and for the followers of Jesus, he's making the same point. You don't have to be a floodlight, but you do need to shine. And when you shine, you dispel the darkness. A second thing light does is it shows the right way to go. Not rocket science. In the days before GPS and radar, coastlines were dotted with what? Of course, they were dotted with lighthouses. Why? 
to show the mariners the way, the way to get into the harbor, the way to stay off of the rocks. When we live out our faith, brothers and sisters, in the midst of our family and our friends, our neighbors, our classmates, our co-workers, our life can be a light to guide others for how to live well. Just as his manner of life and his words and his death and his resurrection illuminated the way out of the spiritual darkness for you and me when Jesus did that, so too we can live in such a way as to show others. Here's the way to Jesus. And then third, light reveals what's already there. Interesting, isn't it? The darkness hides. The light illuminates. I think of of John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. This is how Jesus is introduced in the opening chapter of that gospel. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, what? Overcome it. It can't overcome it. Life is in Jesus. Spiritual darkness tries to keep that truth buried to our world. But when you and I are the light and we're living out Jesus well, the world can't hide that truth. Jesus is life. Amen? Yeah. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. doesn't say so that they can hear your good words. Right? So they can see your good deeds. Why doesn't Jesus say hear your good words? Just words. There's a phrase, talk is cheap. <laughs> we can talk a good story, but it's a whole different matter to live it out, right? And so that's what Jesus is saying here. So they may see your good words. Jesus-like actions will create the opportunity to bring Jesus into the light where you can talk about him. When we love as Jesus loves, we're going to have these good works flowing out of our life. We're going to be influencers, and we're going to create moments where we can talk about Jesus. Is my life, is your life in Jesus reflecting something more than the world has to offer? He has saved us from hell. He's paid our sin debt that we could never pay. He's changed our hearts. He's given us hope. He's put his love into us. He's given us joy. He's set our feet upon a rock which cannot be moved. If we're living that out... We're going to have opportunities to share Jesus. Ephesians 5.8, the Apostle Paul declares, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are what? You are light in the Lord Jesus. Walk as children of light. Now how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we increase our influence as children of light? Well, three quick suggestions. Unleash your difference. Salt has to be salty, right? Light has to shine, right? If it's not doing those things, there's no influence. We must be what we really are, salt and light. We must not be embarrassed. We must not be afraid. We must not be ashamed to be different from the objects that we want to influence. We need to be okay with being different. Are you okay, fellow Christian, with being different from your world? You okay? All right. We can't be bland salt. We can't be a dull light and make much of a difference. 
Someone put it this way, what we are influenced by influences our influence. That takes a little pondering. You need to see that written down probably. What we are influenced by influences our influence. If Jesus is truly Lord and leader of our life, let's not dilute that. Let's not hide that. Let's put it out there. Not with our words so much as with our, our life. Make consistent contact. We have to touch the object we want to influence. We must invite those living in darkness into our lives if we want them to know the Jesus that we know. It's so easy living in our Christian subculture to hardly ever rub shoulders with the unchurched, right? We've got to go out there. We've got to invite them in to our life. Who knows what might happen if your light could shine into someone's life because you deliberately pursued them. And you are, you are a flavorful, tasty attraction to them. Third, we can influence our, or increase our influence only if we are bound tightly together in unity. We've been working away at this all summer long as well. When several lights are brought together, what do you call it? A torch. You call it a, you call it a searchlight, right? Yeah, when you bring salt together and you compact it, man, I'll tell you what, there's power in that. When we are united, when we are bound tightly together, packed together in shared purpose and commitment as Jesus' church, we're going to have great influence. But if we're all out there trying to be a tiny little light here and here and here and here or be a little, little salt crystal over here and one over here, we're not going to do much. But united together, we will. Jesus said in John 17, 23, I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know, Father, that you sent me. Yeah. Yeah. Stories told of an old parish pastor who was ushering some children through the large sanctuary that he was a part of. And it was decorated with many elaborate stained glass window panes A little boy tugged on the pastor's coat and asked, Pastor, what is a Christian? And the pastor paused, and and then he pointed to one of these massive stained glass windows on which the person of Jesus was depicted, and the sun was just beaming full force through this stained glass window. And the pastor said to the little boy, he says, Do you see that up there? He said, Yeah. He said, Well, a Christian is simply a person that the light of Jesus shines through. That's a Christian. Is that you? And is that me? And is that IBC? That's the question of the day, isn't it? Yeah. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Amen and amen. Let's pray together, church family. We thank you so much. Lord Jesus, for taking us into your word and into your sermon preached some 2,000 years ago. It could not be more relevant today for us. It just, it hits it right where we need to be hit. So thank you for that. May we be what you call for here. Salty salt and brilliant light for your sake. And if there be one, maybe more than one in our church family today who, who has never really 
thought of you as Savior and Lord and, and has never given you an opportunity to be salt and light in their life. May that happen today. May we be available to help a friend today know you. You so want to be known. May others see you in us. We'll say thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.